Hi, uh, welcome back to Espionage and I have Sudarshan Garg with me again and the last time we spoke we stopped somewhere around the end of the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. We hope to continue from that point onwards today all the way until Ahmed Shah Massoud's death. So without further ado Sudarshan yeah thank you shanak uh, and i think uh, i believe we had a fairly good response uh, and and to those listening i think one feedback we did get consistently and we promise to hold to that is the length just given a choice we would we will keep rambling on and on and on for hours but uh, so very broadly speaking to to sort of expand on the summary uh, you know the one one line summary of uh, you know that shanak gave we covered briefly the afghan politics uh, polity before the soviet invasion we then covered the soviet invasion and the tactics and counter tactics tactics at length uh, we primarily focused on the panjshir valley theater because that's where that's where it was that's where honestly speaking a lot of the action was there was a lot of action happening in kabul in the south but uh, you know mm-hmm. we didn't cover that uh, maybe we can touch upon it today uh, and then we spoke about uh, you know how you know we had uh, almost nine operation panjshirs or 10 Uh, and all of that could not dislodge uh, you know masood uh, while at the same time and this is very important for the narrative today pakistan uh, was starving masood of uh, you know arms and equipment while you know funneling pretty much uh, everything that the us and the saudis gave the gid and the cia gave into uh, into hekmatyar's faction so so i think that's going to be very very important uh, for today uh because uh, there's going to be a lot of turning points going to be a lot of betrayals and action and it's very unfortunate i know we make it sound like a story but uh, it was a very very bad time for for you know the common afghan so and it still is and oh, honestly i don't i don't think they've had a good time in the last 50 years unfortunately yeah, i was just going to say that 60 70 i mean in between they did have some period of stability where the monarchy was trying to sort of modernize But right. remember, they've always been a clannish society. Not just now, but you know, we talk. We 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 going back to the British era. You know, the British invasions, and they've always revolved around tribes and clans who have, who have valued their independence, uh, which mm-hmm. is translated into the fata. Maybe that's top. That's topic for another day. Okay, so uh, it's nine eighteen. Uh, sorry, nineteen eighty-seven. The Soviets have made up their mind to leave Afghanistan. The Russians. they send out feelers to the americans that boss look we know what you've done and we've had enough we're going to get out of this country in fact they sent the head of the kgb to washington to meet with his counterparts in the cia and i think it was robert gates at that time who headed the cia the the, the kgb guy straight up says look we will leave afghanistan within a matter of months and the cia just didn't take him seriously they thought he was just trying to you know uh, get them off guard because at that point of time even the cia knew that uh, the stinger program was really hurting the soviet army they were losing fighter aircraft they were losing transport uh, aircraft bombers and helicopters attack helicopters by the dozens and uh, at that point of time the soviet economy wasn't doing well enough to kind of you know go on building as many as needed they they just lost the will to fight and they wanted to get out right uh, and and one one point to note uh, you know uh, uh, shanak i think this is a common you know trope that i've seen 
Uh, in terms of the scale of the Soviet casualties, it was it is not even one third of what the Americans uh, uh, you know faced in in Vietnam over a similar period of time. So they you know if you remember the Vietnamese. Uh, sorry, mm-hmm. the the Americans lost about sixty five or sixty eight thousand. Okay, I could be wrong by a couple of thousand, but something on those lines. Uh, American soldiers uh, in, in about a decade, uh, they lost a far more, a far greater number of you know ARVN uh, troops. You're talking about you know in excess of two hundred thousand. So the the scale of the defeat uh, uh, in terms of casualties and numbers was not uh, not that high relatively, but it was a strain on the economy. And this is something I'm going to ask you. Uh, can you can you tell us how grossly uh, uh, you know the CIA underestimated the weakness of the Russian economy uh, back then? I think there were a lot of reports that it was doing well and they were going to threaten the US forever. So is that something that you want to talk about? Just like, just give us a little light on how badly they underestimated the the Soviet uh, you know uh, economy or right. overestimated. So, Sorry. So so a uh, humorous uh, anecdote to illustrate this blind spot that the CIA had. I don't know who it was. It was a member of Congress in the United States who said the CIA found out about the fall of the Berlin Wall when they saw it on CNN. Right. Yeah. I'm guessing that's also true on some level. I mean, did they know no, about it even a day before? No, look, uh, it's not that they didn't know about it. They had intelligence suggesting that the Soviet economy wasn't doing well, that Gorbachev was actually a reformer. And he wanted to sort of end the commanding heights uh, economic paradigm, mm-hmm. you know. But the problem was they also received intelligence inputs stating otherwise. And their bias was towards assuming that the great big Russian bear was evil and immortal. So uh, right. mm-hmm. you, you could say that they 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 erred towards caution, preferring to assume that their mortal enemy was going to survive and thrive so that they could be better prepared. And as a consequence of that, uh, their analysis to the executive did not uh, suggest that the Soviet Union was going to, in fact, disintegrate. Right. Okay. So, so they, I mean, think, as think always, about, got everything think, wrong. Think about <laughs> it. <laughs> Put yourself in the shoes of the director of intelligence and uh, imagine you're writing a report that's supposed to go to Reagan or Bush. I, and you have conflicting intelligence reports. Uh, a couple of sources say the Soviet Union is going to collapse within a matter of weeks. A couple of sources say, you know, they've just commissioned a new fangled weapon system. They're going to induct another 100,000 troops into oh, X theater, Y the, theater. Uh, not the, the same, you know, Hitler wonder weapon uh, yeah. uh, theory or the paradigm or whatever you want to call it. He has a wonder right. weapon and America is going to end. And remember, the CIA is not the only intelligence agency advising the president of the United States. You have something called the Defense Intelligence Agency, which, uh, if rumors are to be believed, has a budget that is about five or six times that of the CIA's. So you, you can tell Reagan that the Soviets are going to crumble and then risk that not happening and looking like a complete idiot only to have your budget you know, slashed into half the next year because the Pentagon says these guys are useless. Just give us the extra money and we'll ramp up uh, intelligence pro- operations through the DIA. Uh, that uh, You can completely understand why uh, they would be very, very careful about uh, saying what they uh, maybe knew was the truth. Right, right. Right. Fair enough. I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't think they miss, they purposely mislead the porters or, or the decision makers, but 
but the, but what I always find funny is they seem to be consistently behind, uh, you know, the curve when it comes to a lot of, you know, world events. The fall of the Berlin Wall is one, Pokhran is another, and there are so many. But anyway, I think uh, let's let's bring it back to the narrative. It's a very important, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's an in interesting sideline discussion, but let's bring it back to the narrative. So, but, but he, did you know, uh, uh, again, Sean Akhtar, Pakistan was again playing a brilliant double game, even here. I mean, that's not something many people know. I'm sure, I'm sure if, uh, you, know, uh, you know, like Christine Fair would, would bring this up often. Uh, but even way back in 83, the, the Pakistanis were essentially, uh, you know, trying to butter both sides of the coin. I mean, that time the rise of China was not a given, so they still wanted to have, uh, you know, have their uh, cake and eat it too, sort of. So Yaqub Ali, you know, the foreign minister then, or Yaqub, I forget, I mean, I forget his exact name, but what he did was he approached uh, the Soviets and said, listen, we, I mean, I understand you, you don't, uh, you know, want a pro-US regime, uh, you know, in, in, in Afghanistan. Uh, at the same time, we don't want a communist regime on our borders. That's not mm -hmm. happening. So we will bring in the monarchy, right? We'll bring in the monarchy. Let it, let it be a you know constitutional monarchy. Let them right. you know come up with their own constitution. Uh, you you stay there till it's, it's 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 established. You guarantee it, and then you walk out. You know, eighty three, way back in eighty three. Uh, right. But then this again, we look back, you know, in timelines to what you said. Uh, you had the whole Pashtun question, and you know, uh, the Pakistanis essentially considered both sides of the Durand line to be their own. And it was vetoed. But even way back in 83, you know, uh, you know, when they were supporting the Mujahideen uh, aggressively, uh, one camp of the ISI, at least the foreign ministry was, you know, working at cost per cross purposes and sort of uh, working with the Soviets to bring this to an end. So that, that's a very, very interesting foreign policy tidbit. Uh, you know, and I love the way, honestly. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, Zia Hulhak had one major fear about the whole covert operation in Afghanistan against the Soviets. And that was the Soviets getting livid, uh, running out of patience and invading Pakistan. Because he knew, uh, had the Russians actually decided to do that, uh, the Pakistan army would have been steamrolled. For one thing, their entire defensive apparatus is oriented towards the east, towards India. Uh, they're, they're not really oriented towards fighting a war against Afghanistan. They've never had to. Uh, not right. since independence. And right. uh, mm. the Russians would have steamrolled them. Uh, they would have also solved the problem of a warm water port in... Yeah, uh, Karachi. Uh, yeah, Karachi, Gwadar. I mean, they would have had an entire coastline to choose from. So yeah. he he was absolutely uh, terrified of that prospect. And that is why he set his foreign ministry the task of engaging in this, you know, high rope balancing act. Where right, you right. you are basically enabling the Afghans to kill Soviet soldiers, but at the same time, you did not want the Soviets to think of you as you know an absolute enemy, as a mortal enemy. Yeah. Yes. So he did that really right. well, and in fact, uh, yeah. Good. In in principle, I think uh, I you know you must appreciate for you know Pakistani foreign policy. Uh, they've always punched about their way, and I respect that. I mean, from a, from a, from a foreign policy, uh, you know, amateur student perspective, I think they've always punched about their weight. They've always played, you know, two sides against another. Maybe now, finally, they're running out of rope. Maybe the monkey balancing is ending with the U.S. completely withdrawing away from Afghanistan, and we don't know how that's going to develop. But they've cultivated, you know, China. I mean, China. They've always been, you know, friends with. I think in the 70s, if I'm not mistaken, I don't know which year exactly. 
for the Chinese National Day, there were only two countries that were represented. One was Albania, the other was Pakistan. And so it's not it's not new, but I think now they've been shifting rather into the Sino camp of things than and moving away from the Western democracy camp. But I always love the way that you know their foreign policy has been balanced in the sense they they tend to balance one power against another and extract you know mileage and resources. Whereas we have always been uh, more on the uh, you know uh, very pra- uh, very dogmatic side, uh, be it the Nehru's Panchashil or whatever it is. And maybe till uh, you know uh, the rise of Modi and his pragmatism, I think we've had very dogmatic uh, you know foreign policy. Uh, directions. So that's that's another thing. So coming back again, uh, we keep meandering. Uh, coming back uh, to the actual withdrawal, I think they did the same thing. The Vietnam, you know, the, the US did in the Vietnam, which is the Vietnamization mm-hmm. of the war, and which uh, and the US did miserably badly just about a couple of months ago, which was the Afghanization of the war. So right. essentially, what they started doing was they started providing only RT support. They started withdrawing their, you know, frontline combat troops into barracks and into fortified camps. Uh, they only provided air support, RT support, recon, and maybe intelligence. So, uh, so there's a so slight the, correction over there. They managed yeah. the Afghanization of the war really well because that didn't happen this year. That happened a couple of years before. Uh, in fact, uh, three or four okay. years before. Mm. Uh, right. They stopped their frontline troops from actually engaging with the Taliban. Uh, all the heavy fighting was done by the ANA. What the Americans right. did was they provided intelligence, they provided air support, and they provided other ancillary services to enable the ANA to take on the Taliban. And the ANA was doing a pretty good job of that until the right. Doha Accords. Right. Uh, okay. at, at that point of time, uh, the Americans decided we are leaving and uh, the the Afghan government is not capable of holding the country together. So we might as well hand it over to the Taliban and get the hell out of here. Now, the the consequences of that were pretty damn devastating. And they didn't appear until earlier this year when uh, Joe Biden decided that enough was enough and he started withdrawing contractors. What that did was it completely ended air support for the Afghan National Army. So the army which the Americans had trained had been trained to fight with massive air support. And they had been trained to fight in a certain manner, which made it impossible for them to thrive without American support. It was designed that way. The dependence was a design decision. And when Joe Biden withdrew contractors and withdrew air support, the Afghan National Army was left with absolutely no way to fight the Taliban. Because look, they were concentrated in cities, okay? In, in each district, the ANA presence was concentrated in cities, not the rural countryside. So the Taliban controlled the roads. The moment air support ended, they had no way of supplying their outposts. So they started collapsing. And as they started collapsing, momentum increased, and boom, Kabul is gone. That's an interesting parallel, though, because uh, the Soviet strategy of Afghanization also worked pretty well. Uh, because if we broadly look at it uh, from from about 85, 86, uh, that's when the combat division slowly started withdrawing from frontline combat duty. The, it was the ADA that was pulling the bulk of the load, and uh, they did again they did a fairly good job, uh, I think, at, at, at fighting the mujahideen. Uh, mm-hmm. An interesting shift here happened though, thanks to some some policy uh, makers uh, sort of seeing the light. Maybe I mean that's a different subject on in itself. 
but the U.S. support for the uh, Masood faction slowly started to increase. I mean, it was not great. It was not like the money started rolling in, uh, but it, it, it definitely started to improve and increase. So he was able to sort of build up his reserves for what was coming you know, ahead in the next uh, couple of years. Uh, so that really right. helped because then the U.S. started funneling more aid and more money and still no stingers because like you said, what, two? He got two or three. Uh, still no singers, eight. Okay, no singers, yeah. but still every, everything else started to uh, flow. And that was a violation of the contract or, or the agreement with, with Pakistan. But again, I'm not really sure if Pakistan knew about this. Maybe that's something you can throw some light on. Mm -hmm. So, uh, this flow of aid to Masood directly from the CIA can be attributed to a few people, one of whom is Gary Shroon who was appointed as Kabul station chief for the CIA. Uh, obviously, he arrived in Pakistan on temporary exile. And uh, it was he who made contact with Masood, flew down to Kabul. And uh, he, it was to him that Masood said, boss, you guys gave me eight stingers. So Gary Shroon at that point ah. of time started funding uh, Masood from the stinger program, the stinger reacquisition program. Right, right, right. Okay. But did the Pakistanis know about this? Were they okay with it? Or they I'm were... sure they weren't they weren't okay with it, but there was little they could do at that point of time. Right. They were right. they, I mean, they were they had bigger fish to fry. See, uh, uh, exactly. just as soon as the Soviets had withdrawn, the Pakistanis and the CIA, they both expected Najibullah's government to fall within a matter of weeks. Uh, at that point of time, uh, it was Hamid Gul who was Director General of ISI. Uh, this is uh, right. a few months after Zia's assassination, assassination. slash death. Mm. Right. Yeah. And uh, Benazir Bhutto was the Prime Minister of Pakistan. She had become the Prime Minister for the first time. And uh, I think uh, she was, you know, absolutely terrified of getting on the wrong side of the ISI. So she mm -hmm. let them do what they wanted to do. Right. Now, right. Hamid I mean, Gul, that's so, when also the Khalistan problem, no, not Khalistan, Kashmir problem exacerbated, right? Because yes. a lot of the resources from the Afghan front were being sort of redeployed into into the into the Kashmir theater. Because okay. 87, if you look at it as 87, 88 is when uh, also the Kashmir problem, you know, metaphorically sort of exploded. So you can think of it this way. The cancer in Afghanistan metastasized in 88, 87, 88, and uh, spread all across the world. It spread into the Middle East. It spread to uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and many countries over there. It spread to the United States as well. And uh, it spread to Africa. It spread to Sudan. It spread to Kenya. In addition to that, it spread to Kashmir. Right. And, and I don't know how much of a relation it is, there is to Afghanistan and the Chechen wars. Uh, because that was more of a nationalistic struggle, but there was a lot of, there were a, a fair bit of, uh, you know, Afghan uh, jihad volunteers or other veterans from the Afghan jihad who fought in uh, Chechnya. And that's another bitter, 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 bitter war. Uh, I mean, it's, it's the, 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 the human angle of that war is just stunning in terms of its atrocities mm -hmm. and scale. But anyway, that's a topic for another day. But you're right. I think, yeah, it did spread and 87, 88 would be the inflection point because if you look at it, uh, the, the Palestine movement till then has, I mean, PLO aside, well, in fact, started as, a, you, know, uh, you, know, you know, you know, the organization led by Best. And they were all secular organizations. You had Christians, you had Palestinian Arab Christians, you had Muslims. It was more of a nationalistic struggle and less of a, you know, jihad-driven 
Islamic struggle, but you're right. I think 86, 87 is when. Uh, so, 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 yeah. So, coming back to uh, the Soviets, uh, essentially uh, left, and after Afghanization, they said, "Okay, you know what? Our economy can't handle this anymore. Uh, we can't handle this burden." And the war was getting very unpopular. Uh, again, similar, you know, similar overtones to what happened in Vietnam. So they said, "Listen, we're out," and they did. They announced it. Uh, you know that they'd be leaving. I think in Feb was it, Chanak? Uh, February of eighty-seven. I mean, I'm very bad with dates. Uh, I know that's uh, history in India, but uh, <laughs> uh, I I don't remember dates very well. But I I think you're right. Uh, it, it was. I know it was February. I know it was February for sure. For mm-hmm. some reason, stuck in my head. Uh, you know, the last uh, truck rolled across the uh, Salang Pass, and then we get into the civil war. Because if anybody thought that you know, with the Soviets gone, the Mujahideen are going to unite, and you know, they're going to you know, they, they're going to form, a, you know, do a kumbaya and sing, you know, merry music. No, because what Afghanistan has notoriously had over centuries is interfactional, intertribal fighting. So they tend to unite against one common aggressor. They see them off, let's say the British uh, or the Soviets, or even now in this case, the Americans, and then they turn on each other. I mean, that's, that's pretty much the cycle that's been prevalent there for, for a long time now, for centuries. And that's right. what they did. So you so want to take slight that? Co- slight correction. Uh, it was 15th February 1989, I think. 89. Sorry. Okay. Like I said, I mean, it was a yeah. February, I know, but not the year. Right. So. Right. So very briefly, the ISI tried to get all the Peshawar 7 to come together and form a government in exile. And the idea was the moment Najibullah fell, this government in exile would ride into Kabul and assume power. Uh, the problem was uh, Hekmatyar did not want to share power with anyone power. else, mm-hmm. right? And right. Uh, he started assaulting his fellow uh, Mujahideen commanders. He'd been uh, always doing that, hasn't he? I mean, right from he ramped it up. He ramped it up. He ramped it up. I mean, uh, in in eighty eight, I think, or maybe it was in eighty nine, he assaulted one of uh, Masood's. Uh, detachments and uh, caused a lot of loss. I mean, uh, I think Masood lost a significant chunk of his second layer of command in that attack. Right. That bad. Uh, ambush, was it, was it? Yes, it was an ambush and it was a pretty bad one. Okay, right. And was it in Panjshir or outside, in outside terrain? But that would be surprising. I, it was outside. I don't think uh, Hekmatyar ever ventured into Panjshir. Okay, that would have been funny. But anyway, right. Okay, yeah. let's... Uh, so, so, so this this plan of the Peshawar Seven coming together and forming a government in exile, it was stillborn. But the ISI kind of you know uh, stuck to it because sunk costs and all they'd spent an outrageous fortune <coughs> of uh, American money on Hekmatyar, yeah. and they wanted him to actually uh, assume power in Kabul and protect their western flank. Ah, so okay, I didn't know that. To be honest, I mean, I didn't know that uh, Pakistan actually wanted Hekmatyar as a president, and that's one. Oh, they did. Yeah, absolutely. Because, right. see, at that point of time, uh, the Peshawar 7, yes, the Pakistanis had started with seven different Mujahideen groups that they were supporting. But around 83, they had completely put all their eggs in the Hekmatyar basket. Yeah, it is. it was the Peshawar 1, to be, to be yes. fully. Uh, yeah. Exactly. And uh, they were hoping that everyone else would fall in line and uh, Hekmatyar would assume command. And since he was the most brutal Mujahideen commander and right. the strongest... Uh, he would be able to hold everyone else together and through a uh, threat of violence and govern Kabul. All right. Uh, right. It didn't work right. out. 
ಜಲಾಲಾಬಾದ್ಗಮೆಂಟ್ perfect plan it makes sense right yeah. and uh, uh, goal said you know it's it's a matter of two days we'll conquer jalalabad his uh, najibullah's army will fall right it didn't it didn't <laughs> it didn't for a long time no. and and they held no, thanks no, no. to you know masood and the others so okay. no that's that's a lot later okay uh, masood and the others uh, Oh, that that that's a separate chapter altogether so this assault on uh, jalalabad jalalabad yeah it it was spearheaded by hekmatyar's group but there right. were other mujahideen groups in it as well and the isi and the pakistan army provided a heck of a lot of support which basically means there were pakistan army soldiers fighting alongside them right. and they got massacred weeks had gone by you know mujahideen corpses littering the whole place and uh, benazir bhutto is asking hamid gul boss you said two days what is going on and hamid gul says yeah, yeah wait 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 we'll 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 win i mean does she even have said anything part. even if it took a year i mean it's not like she had a saying anything she was a she was a sort of a puppet pm right any which way no but that has a bearing on the rise of the taliban all oh, right okay. so so uh, the isi and uh, the peshawar seven are busy trying to conquer jalalabad it doesn't work najibullah stays in power etc etc fast forward uh, do you want to fast forward a few years or do you want to talk about sh- the najibullah government no you know what i'll tell you what let's do this because i again we seem to very consistently underestimate how much we like hearing the sound of our own voices and we've not even gone 3 years in the narrative uh and let's not speed it up i think the civil war i think needs to be covered in depth uh for this for the you know for the outcome and for the rise of the taliban and for the death of masood to make any sort of sense that's that's my take so let's let's tell you what then we can we can in fact this is a good uh, point to segue into the next episode because you know now we get straight into the civil war phase and then you know uh, the rise of the taliban so so what we can do is maybe split it up we can talk about the civil war now and then talk about the rise of the taliban so you know that should give us enough meat to talk for at least another couple of episodes of 30 minutes each i had a number of people reaching out and saying what the hell are you guys doing please get the episode out and so we'll get the next episode out within a week we will and let's focus on the civil war let's just stick to the civil war and complete that at at length uh then we move to the taliban because just exploring the rise of the taliban and the isi support and you know and all of that is going to in my opinion need another episode in itself so I think that's a good that's a good point to segue into the next one I guess that's my take. Perfect. Uh we will need to publish a bibliography. I mean I've got a list of about 10 12 books that I can I think people have been asking me for that as well. I I'll put it up on Substack uh, along with the podcast so anyone who's listening in and wants to read all these things wants the names of the books please just go to my Substack after this has been published the bibliography will be there. That's it for this episode of Espionage Ant. To read about real life cases of espionage, visit espionage.substack.com.